Good evening. I hope you've had a great day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. I'm Big Voice Jay, and this is a show where we get you ready for a good night's sleep with public domain short stories just for you. Links to all the stories can be found at the show notes at bedtimewithbvj.com. And if you'd like to support the show, there's a buy me a coffee link on every page and post. Tonight's story, The Musgrave Ritual, by author Conan Doyle. An anomaly which often struck me in the character of my friend Sherlock Holmes was that, although in his methods of thought he was the neatest and most methodical of mankind, and although he also affected a certain quiet primness of dress, he was, nonetheless, in his personal habits, one of the most untidy men that ever drove a fellow lodger to distraction. Not that I am in the least conventional in that respect myself. The rough-and-tumble work in Afghanistan, coming on the top of a natural bohemianism of disposition, has made me rather more lax than befits a medical man. But with me there is a limit, and when I find a man who keeps his cigars in the coal scuttle, his tobacco in the toe end of a Persian slipper, and his unanswered correspondence transfixed by a jackknife into the very center of his wooden mantelpiece, then I begin to give myself virtuous airs. I have always held, too, that Pistol practice should be distinctly an open-air pastime, and when Holmes, in one of his odd humors, would sit in an armchair with his hair trigger and a hundred boxer cartridges and proceed to adorn the opposite wall with a patriotic VR done in bullet box, I felt strongly that neither the atmosphere nor the appearance of our room was improved by it. Our chambers were always full of chemicals and of criminal relics which had a way of wandering into unlikely positions and of turning up in the butter dish or in even less desirable places. But his papers were my great crux. He had a horror of destroying documents, especially those which were connected with his past cases. And yet it was only once in every year or two that he would muster energy to docket and arrange them. For, as I have mentioned somewhere in these incoherent memoirs, the outbursts of passionate energy when he performed the remarkable feats with which his name is associated were followed by reactions of lethargy, during which he would lie about with his violin and his books, hardly moving, save from the sofa to the table. Thus, month after month, his papers accumulated until every corner of the room was stacked with bundles of manuscript which were on no account to be burned and which could not be put away save by their owner. One winter's night, as we sat together by the fire, I ventured to suggest to him that, as he had finished pasting extracts into his commonplace book, he might employ the next two hours in making our room a little more habitable. He could not deny the justice of my request, so with a rather rueful face he went off to his bedroom, from which he returned presently, pulling a large tin box behind him. This he placed in the middle of the floor, and, squatting down upon a stool in front of it, he threw back the lid. I could see that it was already a third full of bundles of paper, 
tied up with red tape into separate packages. There are cases enough here, Watson, said he, looking at me with mischievous eyes. I think that if you knew all that I had in this box, you would ask me to pull some out instead of putting others in. These are the records of your early work, then, I asked. I have often wished that I had notes of those cases. Yes, my boy, these were all done prematurely before my biographer had come to glorify me. He left it bundle after bundle in a tender, caressing sort of way. They are not all successes, Watson, said he, but there are some pretty little problems among them. Here's the record of the Tarleton murders, and the case of Vambury, the wine merchant, and the adventure of the old Russian woman, and the singular affair of the aluminum crutch, as well as a full account of Ricoletti of the Clubfoot and his abominable wife. And here, ah, now this really is something a little recherche. He dived his arm down to the bottom of the chest and brought up a small wooden box with a sliding lid such as children's toys are kept in. From within, he produced a crumpled piece of paper, an old-fashioned brass key, a peg of wood with a ball of string attached to it, and three rusty old discs of metal. Well, my boy, what do you make of this list? He asked, smiling at my expression. It is a curious collection. Very curious. And the story that hangs around it will strike you as being more curious still. These relics have a history, then. So much so that they are history. What do you mean by that? Sherlock Holmes picked them up one by one and laid them along the edge of the table. Then he reseated himself in his chair and looked them over with a gleam of satisfaction in his eyes. These, said he, are all that I have left to remind me of the adventure of the Musgrave Ritual. I had heard him mention the case more than once, though I'd never been able to gather the details. I should be so glad, said I, if you would give me an account of it. And leave the litter as it is, he cried mischievously. Your tidiness won't bear much strain after all, Watson. But I should be glad that you should add this case to your annals, for there are points in it which make it quite unique in the criminal records of this or... I believe of any other country. A collection of my trifling achievements would certainly be incomplete, which contained no account of this very singular business. You may remember how the affair of the Gloria Scott and my conversation with the unhappy man whose fate I told you of first turned my attention in the direction of the profession which has become my life's work. You see me now when my name has become known far and wide and when I am generally recognized both by the public and by the official force as being a final court of appeal in doubtful cases. Even when you knew me first, at the time of the affair which you have commemorated in A Study in Scarlet, I had already established a considerable, though not a very lucrative, connection. You can hardly realize then how difficult I found it at first and how long I had to wait before I succeeded in making any headway. When I first came up to London, I had rooms in Montague Street, just round the corner from the British Museum, and there I waited, filling in my too abundant leisure time by studying all those branches of science which might make me more efficient, 
Now and again, cases came in my way, principally through the introduction of old fellow students, for during my last years at the university, there was a good deal of talk there about myself and my methods. The third of these cases was that of the Musgrave Ritual, and it is to the interest which was aroused by that singular chain of events and the large issues which proved to be at stake that I trace my first stride towards the position which I now hold. Reginald Musgrave had been in the same college as myself, and I had some slight acquaintance with him. He was not generally popular among the undergraduates, though it always seemed to me that what was set down as pride was really an attempt to cover extreme natural diffidence. In appearance, he was a man of exceedingly aristocratic type, thin, high-nosed, and large-eyed, with languid and yet courtly manners. He was indeed a scion of one of the very oldest families in the kingdom, though his branch was a cadet one which had separated from the northern Musgrave some time in the 16th century, and had established itself in western Sussex, where the manor house of Hurlstone is perhaps the oldest inhabited building in the county. Something of his birthplace seemed to cling to the man, and I never looked at his pale, keen face or the poise of his head without associating him with grey archways and mullioned windows and all the venerable wreckage of a feudal keep. Once or twice we drifted into talk, and I can remember that more than once he expressed a keen interest in my methods of observation and inference. For four years I had seen nothing of him until one morning he walked into my room in Montague Street. He had changed little, was dressed like a young man of fashion, he was always a bit of a dandy, and preserved the same quiet, suave manner which had formerly distinguished him. "'How's all gone with you, Musgrave?' I asked, after we had cordially shaken hands. "'You probably heard of my poor father's death,' said he. "'He was carried off about two years ago. "'Since then I have, of course, had the Hurlstone Estates to manage, "'and as I am member for my district as well, my life has been a busy one. "'But I understand, Holmes, that you are turning to practical ends "'those powers with which you used to amaze us.' "'Yes,' said I, "'I have taken to living by my wits.' "'I am delighted to hear it, "'for your advice at present would be exceedingly valuable to me. "'We have had some very strange doings at Hurlstone, "'and the police have been able to throw no light upon the matter. "'It is really the most extraordinary and inexplicable business. "'You can imagine with what eagerness I listened to him, Watson, "'for the very chance with which I had been panting.' during all those months of inaction seemed to have come within my reach. and my inmost heart, I believed that I could succeed where others failed, and now I had the opportunity to test myself. Pray, let me have the details, I cried. Reginald Musgrave sat down opposite to me and lit the cigarette which I had pushed towards him. You must know, said he, that though I am a bachelor, I have to keep up a considerable staff of servants at Earlstone, for it is a rambling old place and takes a good deal of looking after. I preserve two, and in the pleasant months I usually have a house party, so that it would not do to be short-handed. Altogether, there are eight maids, the cook, the butler, two footmen, and a boy. 
The garden and the stables, of course, have a separate staff. Of these servants, the one who had been longest in our service was Brunton, the butler. He was a young schoolmaster out of place when he was first taken up by my father, but he was a man of great energy and character, and he soon became quite invaluable in the household. He was a well-grown, handsome man with a splendid forehead, and though he has been with us for twenty years, he cannot be more than forty now. With his personal advantages and his extraordinary gifts, for he can speak several languages and play nearly every musical instrument, it is wonderful that he should have been satisfied so long in such a position. But I suppose that he was comfortable and lacked energy to make any change. The butler of Hurlstone is always a thing that is remembered by all who visit us. But this paragon has one fault. He is a bit of a Don Juan. And you can imagine that for a man like him, it is not a very difficult part to play in a quiet country district. When he was married, it was all right, but since he's been a widower, we have had no end of trouble with him. A few months ago, we were in hopes that he was about to settle down again, for he had become engaged to Rachel Howells, our second housemaid, but he has thrown her over since then and taken up with Janet Tregellis, the daughter of the head gamekeeper. Rachel, who's a very good girl, but of an excitable Welsh temperament, had a sharp touch of brain fever and goes about the house now, or did until yesterday, like a shadow of her former self. That was our first drama at Hurlstone, but a second one came to drive it from our minds, and it was prefaced by the disgrace and dismissal of Butler Brunton. This was how it came about. I have said that the man was intelligent, and this very intelligence has caused his ruin, for it seems to have led to an insatiable curiosity about things which did not in the least concern him. I had no idea of the lengths to which this would carry him until the merest accident opened my eyes to it. I have said that the house is a rambling one. One day last week, on Thursday night to be more exact, I found that I could not sleep, having foolishly taken a cup of uh, strong coffee noir after my dinner. After struggling against it till two in the morning, I felt that it was quite hopeless. So I arose and lit the candle with the intention of continuing a novel which I was reading. The book, however, had been left in the billiard room, so I pulled on my dressing gown and started off to get it. In order to reach the billiard room, I had to descend a flight of stairs and then to cross the head of a passage which led to the library and the gun room. You can imagine my surprise when, as I looked down this corridor, I saw a glimmer of light coming from the open door of the library. I had myself extinguished the lamp and closed the door before coming to bed. Naturally, my first thought was of burglars. The corridors at Hurlstone have their walls largely decorated with trophies of old weapons. From one of these, I picked a battle axe and then, leaving my candle behind me, I crept on tiptoe down the passage and peeped in at the open door. Brunton, the butler, was in the library. He was sitting, fully dressed in an easy chair with a slip of paper which looked like a map upon his knee, and his forehead sunk forward upon his hand in deep thought. I stood dumb with astonishment, watching him from the darkness. 
A small taper on the edge of the table shed a feeble light which sufficed to show me that he was fully dressed. Suddenly, as I looked, he rose from his chair and, walking over to a bureau at the side, he unlocked it and drew out one of the drawers. From this he took a paper and, returning to his seat, he flattened it. From this he took a paper and, returning to his seat, he flattened it out beside the taper on the edge of the table and began to study it with minute attention. My indignation at this calm examination of our family documents overcame me so far that I took a step forward, and Brunton, looking up, saw me standing in the doorway. He sprang to his feet, his face turned livid with fear, and he thrust into his breast the chart-like paper which he had been originally studying. So, said I, this is how you repay the trust which we have reposed in you. You will leave my service tomorrow. He bowed with the look of a man who was utterly crushed and slunk past me without a word. The taper was still on the table, and by its light I glanced to see what the paper was which Brunton had taken from the bureau. To my surprise, it was nothing of any importance at all, but simply a copy of the questions and answers in the singular old observance called the Musgrave Ritual. It is a sort of ceremony peculiar to our family, which each Musgrave for centuries past has gone through on his coming of age. A thing of private interest, and perhaps of some little importance to the archaeologist, like our own blazonings and charges, but of no practical use whatever. We had better come back to the paper afterwards, said I. If you think it really necessary, he answered with some hesitation. To continue my statement, however, I relocked the bureau, using the key which Brunton had left, and I had turned to go when I was surprised to find that the butler had returned and was standing before me. Mr. Musgrave, sir, he cried in a voice which was hoarse with emotion. I can't bear disgrace, sir. I've always been proud above my station in life, and disgrace would kill me. My blood will be on your head, sir. It will indeed, if you drive me to despair. If you cannot keep me after what is past, then for God's sake, let me give you notice and leave in a month, as if of my own free will. I could stand that, Mr. Musgrave, but not to be cast out before all the folk that I know so well. You don't deserve much consideration, Brunton, I answered. Your conduct has been most infamous. However, as you have been a long time in the family, I have no wish to bring public disgrace upon you. A month, however, is too long. Take yourself away in a week and give whatever reason you like for going. Only a week, sir, he cried in a despairing voice. A fortnight, say at least a fortnight. A week, I repeated. And you may consider yourself to have been very leniently dealt with. He crept away, his face sunk upon his breast like a broken man, while I put out the light and returned to my room. For two days after this, Brunton was most assiduous in his attention to his duties. I made no allusion to what had passed, and waited with some curiosity to see how he would cover his disgrace. On the third morning, however, he did not appear, as was his custom. After breakfast, to receive my instructions for the day. As I left the dining room, I happened to meet Rachel Howells, the maid. 
I have told you that she had only recently recovered from an illness and was looking so wretchedly pale and wan that I remonstrated with her for being at work. You should be in bed, I said. Come back to your duties when you are stronger. She looked at me with so strange an expression that I began to suspect that her brain was affected. I am strong enough, Mr. Musgrave, said she. We will see what the doctor says, I answered. You must stop work now and... When you go downstairs, just say that I wish to see Brunton. The butler is gone, said she. Gone? Gone where? He is gone. No one has seen him. He's not in his room. Oh, yes, he's gone. He's gone. She fell back against the wall with shriek after shriek of laughter. While I, horrified at this sudden hysterical attack, rushed to the bell to summon help. The girl was taken to her room, still screaming and sobbing, while I made inquiries about Brunton. There was no doubt about it that he had disappeared. His bed had not been slept in. He had been seen by no one since he had retired to his room the night before. And yet it was difficult to see how he could have left the house, as both windows and doors were found to be fastened in the morning. His clothes, his watch, and even his money were in his room but the black suit which he usually wore was missing. His slippers, too, were gone, but his boots were left behind. Where then could Butler Brunton have gone in the night? And what could have become of him now? Of course, we searched the house from cellar to garret, but there was no trace of him. It is, as I have said, a labyrinth of an old house, especially the original wing, which is now practically uninhabited, but... We ransacked every room and cellar without discovering the least sign of the missing man. It was incredible to me that he could have gone away leaving all his property behind him, and yet where could he be? I called to the local police, but without success. Rain had fallen the night before, and we examined the lawn and the paths all around the house, but in vain. Matters were in this state when a new development quite drew our attention away from the original mystery. For two days, Rachel Howells had been so ill, sometimes delirious, sometimes hysterical, that a nurse had been employed to sit up with her at night. On the third night after Brunton's disappearance, the nurse, finding a patient sleeping nicely, had dropped into a nap in the armchair when she woke in the early morning to find the bed empty, the window open, and no signs of the invalid. I was instantly aroused and, with the two footmen, started off at once in search of the missing girl. It was not difficult to tell the direction which she had taken, for, starting from under her window, we could follow her footmarks easily across the lawn to the edge of the mare, where they vanished close to the gravel path which leads out of the grounds. The lake there is eight feet deep, and you can imagine our feelings when we saw that the trail of the poor demented girl came to an end at the edge of it. Of course, we had the drags at once and set to work to recover the remains, but no trace of the body could we find. On the other hand, we brought to the surface an object of a most unexpected kind. It was a linen bag which contained within it a mass of old rusted and discolored metal and several dull-colored pieces of pebble or glass. This strange find was all that we could get from the mare, and although we made every possible search and inquiry yesterday, we knew nothing of the fate 
either of Rachel Howells or of Richard Brunton. The county police are at their wits' end, and I have come up to you as a last resource. You can imagine, Watson, with what eagerness I listened to this extraordinary sequence of events and endeavored to piece them together and to devise some common thread upon which they might all hang. The butler was gone, the maid was gone, the maid had loved the butler but had afterwards had cause to hate him. She was of Welsh blood, fiery and passionate. She had been terribly excited immediately after his disappearance. She had flung into the lake a bag containing some curious contents. These were all factors which had to be taken into consideration, and yet none of them got quite to the heart of the matter. What was the starting point of this chain of events? There lay the end of this tangled line. I must see that paper, Musgrave, said I, which this butler of yours thought it was worth his while to consult, even at the risk of the loss of his place. It is rather an absurd business, this ritual of ours, he answered, but it has at least the saving grace of antiquity to excuse it. I have a copy of the questions and answers here, if you care to run your eye over them. He handed me the very paper which I have here, Watson, and this is the strange catechism to which each Musgrave had to submit when he came to man's estate. I will read you the questions and answers as they stand. Whose was it? His who is gone. Who shall have it? He who will come. What was the month? The sixth from the first. Where was the sun? Over the oak. Where was the shadow? Under the elm. How was it stepped? North by ten and by ten, east by five and by five, south by two and by two, west by one and by one, and so under. What shall we give for it? All that is ours. Why should we give it? For the sake of the trust. The original has no date, but is in the spelling of the middle of the 17th century, remarked Musgrave. I am afraid, however, that it can be of little help to you in solving this mystery. At least, said I, it gives us another mystery, and one that is even more interesting than the first. It may be that the solution of the one may prove to be the solution of the other. You will excuse me, Musgrave, but... I say that your butler appears to me to have been a very clever man, and to have had a clearer insight than ten generations of his masters. I hardly follow you, said Musgrave. The paper seems to me to be of no practical importance. But to me it seems immensely practical, and I fancy that Brunton took the same view. He had probably seen it before that night on which you had caught him. It is very possible. We took no pains to hide it. He simply wished, I should imagine, to refresh his memory upon that last occasion. He had, as I understand, some sort of map or chart which he was comparing with the manuscript and which he thrust into his pocket when you appeared. That is true. But what could he have to do with this old family custom of ours and what does this rigmarole mean? I don't think that we should have much difficulty in determining that, said I. With your permission, we shall take the first train down to Sussex and go a little more deeply into the matter upon the spot. We'll continue the story on our next episode. <laughs>
We're always on the hunt for great stories like this to feature on the show. If you have a suggestion, send it over to bigvoicej at gmail.com. We've got a YouTube channel full of stories from the show. Go to tiny.cc slash bvjbedtime. If you found value in this podcast, be sure to show the love. There's a Buy Me A Coffee link on every post. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>